art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Art on Your Sleeve, a podcast about art, design and the music industry. In this episode I interview Peter Ashworth, a photographer whose work you will be familiar with from record sleeve images that he's taken of people like Annie Lennox at the Eurythmics, Dead or Alive, Adam and the Ants, Brian Ferry, Public Image Limited, Soft Cell, The Associates, the list goes on and on and on. His work was everywhere in the 80s and into the 90s as well. When he was in Liverpool for his exhibition, I caught up with him for a two and a half hour chat where we went down memory lane and looked back over a massive body of work. We've managed to edit the interview down to a more manageable size for this podcast though, so I hope you enjoy it. Just to give you some context to Peter's work, it's probably useful if I read from the publicity that was at the exhibition that was entitled Mavericks. Peter Ashworth emerged in the early 1980s as one of the era's essential photographers. His work was ever-present in the exploding music and fashion publications such as The Face and Smash Hits magazines, which alongside his iconic album covers established him as a highly original creative force. At that time, young hip mavericks had unfastened their macho bondage trousers, scrubbed off punk's grubbiness and reappeared as new romantics, King's Road pirates, 50s rockabillies and glamorous goths. Peter Ashworth was at the heart of this scene as both an observer and a participant. So it was fascinating to talk to Peter about his work and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Sit back, put your feet up and drift back in time. Hello Peter, Hi. thank you for agreeing to uh, talk to me about your exhibition here at the Gallery in Liverpool. My pleasure. I believe this is your first exhibition. It is. Why is that? <sighs> I would have loved to have had an exhibition a long time ago. Um, but because I shoot film, and I gave film to the clients, I didn't have a lot of my pictures. I only had clip tests and a few frames I snipped out just after processing. I then discovered that when I tried to start trawling around to find out where the bulk of the shoots were so I could go through them and maybe draw pictures for something like an exhibition, the shoots were nowhere to be found. They weren't in filing cupboards. I mean, this repeatedly happened. Okay, I was asking maybe 10 or 15 years after the shoot, but I didn't expect them to have disappeared. Um, And I always hoped that it was going to get better with time, that things would turn up. Hasn't turned out that way. So I finally basically made a decision. I've got what I've got. Mm. I'm going to have to work with what I've actually got in these filing cabinets. And then I was contacted by Martin and James of Duovision um, and asked if I'd like to do a solo show. And I thought, wow, I'd really love to do a solo show. That's what I've been waiting for. Let's take this seriously. Yes, I'll sign up for it. And then I started going through stuff. Unfortunately, James and Martin had a point of view. So it was really helpful to actually have someone else's point of view looking at these pictures fresh. Um, And we just sort of dust started discovering that actually there was lots of stuff and it was going to be really difficult to whittle it down to just the picture, you know, the 30 or 40 pictures I had in here. Was the fact that it's in Liverpool one of the reasons why? Because there's quite a, a Liverpool slant to it. You've got a lot of, a lot of bands here from, from the city. Um, did, was that part of it or was that coincidental? It is part of it. Basically, when the pictures were being chosen, 
there was an eye out for those people who came from Liverpool. But the irony is, quite a lot of people I photographed came from Liverpool. It's Liverpool. Such a was, creative city. Uh, it obviously <laughs> was. You know, it's like London was back in the 70s and 80s because yeah. there was space for it to be creative. Um, Liverpool has produced brilliant musical artists. And, um, I don't know about in other fields, but musicians, it's created an abundance since the 60s. And it wasn't that difficult to actually... I could have filled this whole thing up with Liverpudlians. Yeah. But they would have started getting a bit obscure. <laughs> and we wanted to keep it to the more famous people, probably from the early part of my career. Mm. Caesar's praying for rain Lightning flashes around The prophet is screaming Okay, so going right back to the very start, the first record I've got of your photography on a record cover was 1979 with the Head Boys, is that correct? Rocking Russian design? Yeah, I was, I was probably a sister. Actually, my God, you've done some I've work. done my research. You have indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I can remember the cover. It was done while I was assisting. I, the, last, the second to last person I assisted was in Cubit's Yard, which is actually where the Apple Store and Covent Garden is now, oh. and where actually spitting images came after the photographers were turfed out. Photographers always move into areas that are rough to be turfed out once they become hit, you know, <laughs> by the estate agents. Um, and I did a shoot there. I did a whole bunch of shoots while I was there. That was a wicked place to assist. I was round the corner from PX, where Steve Strange worked. Mm-hmm. Um, Covent Garden was empty then. Yeah. It only had photographers in it and labs. No shops. It was a really different place. The market had just moved out and was still a shell. Um, boarded up if I remember rightly and everybody you met was doing something really interesting yeah. uh, it was a big creative hub yeah so is that where you because then that same year you did the very very first Visage singles Tar didn't you was also probably done in the other the photographer's studio I assisted for yeah. yeah and then of course I ended up doing the Visage One album cover which mm. I totally confused me because I called it The Swing and I kept looking at my job book for years after saying what the hell was The Swing I don't remember <laughs> and it's, it's a name I gave to the shoot because I didn't know what the album was to be called um, I didn't even know if it was going on an album um, so I was assisting for about the first half a dozen releases so was that Visage album the first one, one of the first that you were actually in charge of rather than assisting on? Oh, no, I didn't assist on any of these. No, I know, I was the photographer at least. Oh, right, No, okay. I had a full-time assisting job. Ah, and these sorry. were shoots I was doing on the side, right. either in the evening using the photographer's studio okay, yeah. or wandering off and doing something on location. But I wasn't, I wasn't actually working for myself at that point. Right. I was still a photograph assistant at that point. I was assisting three photographers right, who got, yeah. shared a studio. Um, I then ended up working with yet one more photographer, but he didn't allow me to work for anybody or do any jobs while I worked for him. So there was this funny little little bump when I was going to the Blitz, which was again just down the street. Yeah. I was mixing with Steve Strange and starting to realise that this was a serious scene 
I was doing a bit of fashion. I had met Stephen Jones, the hat maker at LCP, and I was starting to do tests with him. That was a real, actually, I've, I've forgotten about this. I haven't thought as much about this. I, I told you I'd take you back down yeah, memory lane. Yeah, no, it was interesting. <laughs> but it was a great little, little time. Yeah. And yeah, I didn't even have intense. any equipment. I was, what you do when you're assistant is you borrow your photographer's gear. Yeah. And they were cool enough to let me use this and to do proper jobs with it. So you were mentioning before about being in the sort of hub of it all in Covent Garden and with designers and musicians and fashion people. And my notes here, I've got that you uh, were actually credited on a record by The The as a percussionist and vocalist. Now I got him onto a... I, when I was 13, <laughs> and living in Eastbourne, I became a drummer. Right. I, um, this guy played guitar. I bought a single snare drum and a stool. It was later added to with a bass drum and a floating tom, and then a few cymbals. Um, I've still got the kit. It's actually <laughs> been with a, an equipment hire company forever. But basically, by the time I came to London, by the time... I met, but actually, it's exactly the same time as I was assisting in this studio mm -hmm. is when I actually met Matt Johnson, because I photoed him and Keith Floors yes. lying on the floor. You might have seen that yeah. black and white one, which is infamous now, because it keeps popping up and disappearing, and I've just resurrected it. But when I met them, we started chatting, and I think Matt might have been looking for a percussionist. I said, well, I'm a drummer. And prior to this, at LCP, I'd actually been in the band there a punk band that was either called the Crocodiles or the Thoves. Um, and our claim to fame as a punk band was that we actually, um, we are going to play at Alexander Palace uh, on, on, the, on the, we were supporting the Slits and someone else. That particular night there was a power cut at Alexander Palace and I ended up doing a drum battle with Palmolive from the Slits, which was <laughs> quite cool. Then Joe Strummer walks up afterwards, introduces himself and I say, aren't you in a band? At which point he turns around in disgust thinking I'm taking the piss and walks away <laughs> from it. Same year as the Adam, that was Kings of the Wild Frontier. That was all. The, that was an incredibly busy year for you, 1980. You know what? So. If you actually look at my job book, I was doing a job every two or three days, and they ended up being immense yeah. jobs. Um, extraordinary. That was taken off of television screen, wasn't it? The, the Adam and that one. Yes. Um, yeah. I went to a rehearsal. Adam and the uh, Adam and the Ants were just about to do their first Top of the Pops. Adam wanted to see how they came across on TV. He wanted. I, I, really logical, really, but I don't think people did it back then. Mm. Video was in its really early days. Um, a video system was a giant camera one guy was holding an enormous recording yeah. box that someone else was holding. Um, we did it in a tiny room near Brixton Town Hall that was really tiny. So when the crew got in front of the band to film them, I realised I couldn't see a damn thing. I was standing at the back behind all these, the crew looked to my left and realised there was a monitor there. I could see what the band was shooting. So I started shooting off the monitor. But as you're probably aware, if you try and shoot something like a TV screen in a, a room with lights, yeah. you get all the reflections in it. Yeah. So I actually, we looked at the film, 
What I'd shot off the screen was better than anything else I'd shot, mainly because I couldn't get in there. And we decided to actually replay all that stuff back at CBS's. <laughs> it was CBS back then in Soho Square. They had a video suite on the third floor. And we went and spent a day there playing all the reels back. And I just, we're in a blacked out room and we shot, we just kept shooting. Mm. I have no idea where the rest of the film is. I only shot it on 35mm. Um, but that was a really powerful image. Yeah, it's, you know, it's iconic, got the white it? blur, it's got the, yeah. it's got a mix of real hard focus, it's got all the intensity of the video pattern, but it's blurred. Mm. It, it lures you in, and it, it, but it hides a mystery. It's got all those contradictions I adore in photographs, and contradiction is one of my bywords. I actually look to get contradiction in everything I do. I don't always know when I've got it. I, I can read it afterwards, but... Um, yeah, it was an important sleeve, though. So right. you did the bedsitter cover. Well, the, the first thing was I actually went up to Rock City to do... Steve-O was having a gig. He was having a, some bizarre night. Mm -hmm. And I think Soft Cell was one of about three or four acts. With Even Blamange and the, the, uh, the Depeche well, Mode. Was, was there there? I think well, so, I must yeah. Have, I must yeah. have played that night, then. The bed, not the bedsitter album with all of the crockery stuck to the wall. Isn't that great? What was that about? I love it. Oh, no, well, you see, the thing was, is that Steve-O just trusted me. I mean, he had absolute trust in me. He saw that if he gave me a job, I was going to do something pretty damn serious. Mm. Uh, the, worst, the, the hardest thing he ever had to do was to try and stop me from doing the shoot that day because yeah. I would never stop. Everyone would be dropping like flies. So he had faith. So he would just give me a job said, there's a single coming out called Bedsitter. Come up with something. I thought, what the fuck? Pots and pans. You know, sink. What do you do? Well, let's just stick some pans on a back wall. Uh, <laughs> and it was the first time Mark Orman ever told me off because I literally just had a, 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 a pale ice blue colour armour with some double-sided tape on it, and I was sticking the pots and pans to it. They dropped off the entire shoe, and it drove Mark. Every time he went to take a picture, another pan would drop off. And he got really <laughs> irritated with me. I mean, the fact that we've got such a gorgeous picture, that it actually is. somehow just gets better with time. Yeah. Because it actually has an absurd, ironic look to it. It looks like it's fake posing. Mm. It, it looks like it's fake lighting. The whole thing's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it just it's brilliantly kitsch as well. And I mean, no, that was before Tim Pope had actually done his insane, wonderful uh, kitchen sink drama. You know, yeah. it's, um, well, I actually was there at that video shoot and I actually thought, actually, you're just extend you're extending this idea, spinning carpets mm -hmm. and all the rest. It was bloody great. That's what was good about Soft Cell. I think they had a close-knit team of people like you as the photographer, Hugh as the designer. Yeah and Tim Pope is the video person, yeah. who all sort of understood we the became, philosophy We became the extra members of the band. Yeah. Something yeah. I always tried to do, if I could, if there was time, I would actually, coming from being a drummer myself, and it was, it was, a re, it was relevant to mention that at the beginning of this, because I came, I met bands as if I was a band member rather than a record company exec. Yeah. But in 83 was also, you, so you were still doing a lot of stuff with Soft Cell, so you did The Art of Falling Apart, 
in the sand pit with all the skulls and that was just things. on the floor we just threw it down about that was with Hugh Feather I remember yeah. he bought all the, the that's possibly the last time I saw Hugh Feather actually oh really yeah I think I think that might have been the last year I saw him on um, yeah it was, it was it was great that we, we got a load of sand we had all these funny little objects um, and they said we want to do a couple of versions but they always got multiple versions out of me anyway and I use coloured gels a lot, so we decided to actually just change it with colours. So one was pink and one was... Orange? Orange, I guess, yeah. Because yeah. um, they come as they come. I mean, you know, now you can change colours afterwards, then you got what you mm. shot. Um, and I, the funniest thing I remember is actually they bought, actually during one of these shoots, one of those colours changes, it was just lying there, fast asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's wearing a mask, you don't actually know he's fast asleep. It's only Mark that's looking <laughs> through his mask. And I just think that's wonderful. He's probably the first chance the poor soul's had to lie down in about three months. And he's falling asleep during his record shoot. It's great. The cover of Soul Inside as well, with all of the paint and the spray paint in there. Do you remember that oh, one? Oh, on the back wall. That's you as well, isn't well, that's, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I love... I, I, the thing I hated most was actually white background shoots. I... I've actually written about this just recently. It's, I understand the reason for white background shoots. It allows a great graphic quality to an image to evolve. But fundamentally that white is nothing. And I liked, if you were gonna want something that was much paler than the subject, I actually looked at shoots, I broke the shoots into a theatrical stage. You had a foreground, a middle ground and a background. Often in those early days, the studios weren't really very deep. They were garage-sized studios, so you, it was difficult. I, I evolved this over many years. Um, but when I ended up working in some of the giant studios, like the 6,000-square-foot Baglins that I used to shoot in, um, which is just an amazing-sized space to actually have as a photography studio, mm. you really could sh sh separate each of these layers to a photograph. You're looking through a camera, I would shoot on a square format Hasselblad, record covers are square. It's almost the only real requirement for any square pictures ever when vinyl covers. There's nothing else that requires square. But you can get great graphics with square that almost comes, it almost works better in square format than it does in any other format. So you don't need to use white to make that really strong and make it bold. So let's start adding a little bit of depth to what otherwise could be just a flight white nothingness. So I started using lights and shadows and almost sculpted shapes and inferences of something. If you were gonna do spray painting, that was obviously more substantial. Sometimes there'd be big shadows of things, like on the Dave Ball in Strict Tempo one. Mm. That is actually a white piece of paper behind them. <laughs> but there is so much stuff either side of the white paper that's then casting massive dark shadows. And then there's a little bit of red light creeping through that it looks like black and red thunderclouds. Mm. It's amazing what you can do with a white sheet of paper if you've got a big enough studio. The, the trouble is the separation. If I'm going to light you straight on, you've got to be a long way from the background for me that light to not destroy the background. Mm. So most other photographers couldn't get into this. They, one, you needed a big studio. Two, you needed a lot of equipment. Three, you needed a lot of time to set that equipment up. All of a sudden, that's 
four figures off, off your budget yeah. that you didn't need to have spent. But if you do spend it, my God, you can start having fun. It's definitely and one of your... And all of a sudden, you realise you can create worlds. Literally, I start defining myself as creating mind spaces around the artist that hopefully would have originated from a conversation with the artist. It does feel like one of your signature styles and, and it's one of the sort of linking themes through a lot of these, that kind of very rich, lush colours, those, you know, there's... It's only really you and Brian Griffin, perhaps, who does a similar sort of Brian thing. Brian Griffin I adored. I yeah. actually was introduced to Brian before I started shooting Al um, McDowell and Rocket Russian. I think worked with Brian already. I've never come across this guy because he worked for Management ma Management Today and business magazines. Mm. He wasn't in my world at all. But when I started seeing those Devo, those first little booklet appeared to be like, this should have been Devo. This was a guy standing in a, a roundabout looking up and looking strange. And I thought, where the hell is this coming from? And he was using little red headlights that had, um, barn doors and, and because it's a hard light source and you can take it in and out of focus within the reflector and you can use the barn doors you can create magical patterns but it doesn't feel like repetition well hopefully. it feels more like a signature style it's like i think you know as an as a kind of consumer of, of, mu of music design and photography i could always recognize your work we see that picture of it, everything but the girl and that picture of the clash. They've both got the swirling backgrounds, yeah. but they're actually quite different in the way they've been done. Yeah. One's just one light coming that way, straight at each other, and this has got two or three, and they seem to be almost creating swirling auras around the band. Well, there's a theatre about them, isn't there? There's a sort of sense of occasion and drama about the images, that, that, whereas now everyone's just trying to be too cool. It's almost, they want it to look like it's just been shot on a phone or something, because it's, it's too... The professional photographers I know who are doing really well are the ones that shoot iPhone-type pictures mm. on professional systems. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. The Thompson Twins, because they're not in this show. I love the Thompson and that Twins. Was a, I did them a few times. That, that Into the Gap album was such a, a, a you know what, powerful image know. at I, the time. I, I, think, I think they might be one of the bands where a lot of the pictures have disappeared. Oh, that's a shame. I think, I think if I've got any Thompson Twins, we're only talking a couple of frames. And I don't think... I think there was always someone not right on one of those frames. You know what happens. Mm, you, yeah. You're photographing a five-member band and four of them can only look and the other guy's sort of looking it out. I believe Bananarama were infamous for that. When I was talking to one of their you designers, it was like they, there was never a picture that had all three of them looking good on it. In 1984, Frankie goes to Hollywood. Oh, that was an interesting job. So you're working mm. with Paul Morley, Tom Watkins, all of those people around that, that XL uh, design. Uh, and no, 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 no. I never, I never worked with XL. Actually, I might They did the once. sleeve, though, didn't they? Maybe, did they? Mm. Okay. Um, right, I, I went for a meeting with Paul Morley, got a call out of the blue. This isn't a guy I hung out with a lot. Um, and he basically said he wanted to do something with said, uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And he had this idea to create a jungle of plenty, a cornucopia. 
But the jungle was full of good and bad. It was the temptations of life, the things that would enrich your life and the things that would screw it up. Um, we wanted to be highly sort of political, not not literally political, but yeah. it had you know it wanted to question. As with all poor body things, it was meant to get people to ask mm. questions, and and that was pretty much it. And he gave me a, a, a rough budget. And these were the days when I actually did everything myself. I would prop every shot. So I you made did. the set I, and everything? Well, not only that, I would often style bands out of my own clothes. I would take <laughs> my own clothes to shoots and then end up putting them on a band and photographing them in it. It was a very different time back mm. then. I have to say I miss it, and I think that creative would be more interesting if it was back like that rather than like it is now, where PR companies take control of everything and they know nothing. So in 1984, after Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you worked with Depeche Mode. You did the cover of Blasphemous Rumours, which was just like a close-up of the hands. And do you remember that? Yeah. Um, I think that was a Martin Atkins job. Yes. I mean, I, I was one of those photographers that basically either worked with art departments and record companies or freelance art directors. Um, Martin Atkins did loads of stuff and um, he was doing Depeche Mode at the time. Yeah. So I did a, a number of sleeves which actually didn't feature the band but had bits of bodies that were illustrating the idea. There was obviously a groove of that going on. Um, it makes it more interesting in a way because those bands were sort of pin-up bands anyway. You could get their pictures in Smash Hits or Blitz or The Face. So in, I think it was more interesting yeah, when so I, designers and, and photographers... I'm sure that's what Martin had in yeah. the back of his mind to do yeah. something like that. You know, it's... Yeah, it can all get a bit too poppy, can't it? Yeah. It's, uh, and, it, you know, no one really wants to be a pop star. You want to be taken as a serious artist, but you want to sell the amount that a pop star yeah. sells. You want the, to capture the imagination, but you don't want to come across too mercenary. Mm. And the pop stars can sometimes look like they want too much, if yeah. you know what I mean. That's where Martin and the, the Town and Country, TNCP graphics made... TNCP, that's right. They did all, made everything just feel... Town and Country feel, yeah. yeah, they created such an iconic look for the band that wasn't about their photographs. It was a really clever way of doing it. Yeah, they were actually, they were based, I just remember, they were based on the Westway flyover at that time, so that urban environment could have fed into that sort yeah. of thinking. He's in the States now, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's, I still speak to him. He's, he's still friends. Yeah. So you also did the cover of uh, People Are People with the, the holding the wreath. The yeah. black and white photograph. What, what, what was that about? It was, it was a definite. Uh, you know, when you uh, you got a guy coming up just as a priest and a guy who's just as a soldier, and they're holding a wreath between them. No, it's all pre-done. I mean, I think they were just models, books. But actually, the the priest was um, Hugh Grant, which is rarely known. <laughs> but uh, I don't know who the other guy was. But it's it's fascinating when you actually realise you photograph someone at the very beginning How of their funny. career and they're yeah. just doing a jobbing. <laughs> I don't know if he was rented as a model or he was a friend of someone's. And that, that period again, I mean, we were saying at the very start of the 80s you were intensely busy, but in 84 there were so many of those, because that was, um, you also did the sophisticated Boom Boom album for Dead or Alive. Yeah. <laughs> we 
with Pete surrounded now, by... Now, I've actually now moved studios. This is when I was in Bagley's Warehouse now. I was in Bagley's Warehouse, as I've said, for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah. So that 84 was obviously when I was in there. Um, that was a wonderful place to work because they actually... There was about 15 different companies in one. One of them made things out of wood. Uh, there was a stage and catwalk company that built catwalks for fashion model shows. There was a lighting department that had old theatre lights. It was one of those treasure trove places that mm. I suddenly found I was the guy who was the photographer who had all access to this. Um, so is that where that shot, that shoot was done with Pete for the album cover? Yeah, and the things he's actually on that you, I don't know that you actually, I don't know if any pictures were released with him actually crawling on these <laughs> bits of wood. It was, I think it was hurting his knees and whatever. <laughs> but all the props and that he brought. Oh, um, right. he, he arrived with all those props. I mean, I would have hardly gone out and got a room full of furs um, and given them a fur suit to wear. It's, uh, you know, that was provocative even back then. Yes, yeah. Um, and I didn't really know who Pete was, I have to say. I'm, I'm well, it was early days for them, really, wasn't it? It was, it was later on that, that with You Spin Me Round, they, got, they sort of went massive. Absolutely. So was he at all involved in the creative with that, or was that just all...? Well, all... yeah, no, he, you know, I involved everybody, if, if they wanted to be involved. When I say I shot Polaroids, they weren't just for me. They were, they were actually to show the artists what I was trying to do. Right. It was showing them how they related to each other in a, in a thing, if it was a group. Uh, and it would give them feedback that we could grow them, and it involved them more. Some people didn't like seeing themselves being photographed, and so you quickly learnt that, and you didn't involve them too much, you just cracked on with it. Right. But someone like Pete wanted to be massively involved. Uh, the first thing I was told was I had to shoot the whole shoot with a soft focus filter, which was the first time I'd ever been asked to use a soft focus filter, and I'm really upset now I did, uh, but, you know, if someone asked me to do that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be faithful to the artist. Mm. Um, thing is, he looked fantastic then. He was a gorgeous guy. And why he was worried about his looks. But obviously that was something yeah. that he was worried about. Yeah. But it was a great shoot. Um, provided loads of pictures. I was quite surprised when I saw the sleeve. Because it was sort of really crudely cut up from what looked like prints that have been printed and then cut with rough scissors and then stuck on top of each other and it's bits not quite working. It was sort of punkified, <laughs> but it, it was one of those sleeves that came out that was nothing like what I'd actually shot. Yeah. And the print I've got here is a real print, shows you actually what the set looked like. Yeah. Um, and if I'd actually produced this image at the time, they would have probably used that as a cover. It's, it's, it's one of those. But you write about the soft focus thing as well, because I noticed that looking at that particular photograph, it, it, it's, it stands apart for that reason, because yeah. your pictures are so sharp and you yeah. really can see the detail. And with yeah. that one, there is a... Haze, a sort yeah. of swirl over it. Yeah. A mist, uh, not a mistiness, but a lack of something, a lack of bite. Mm. So going from Pete Burns, who was a kind of extravagant left left sort of field artist you went on to work with phil collins is that right yeah i did i did work with phil that was actually a few years later though because i was now in my own studio in clerkenwell road when i did him um and he was a really charming guy actually really sweet um just prepared for anything he wanted a very simple headshot um wanted nothing special from the shoot knew exactly what he wanted and that's all we did and I shot that on large format I think I shot that on a 5x4 camera uh, or even a 10x8 which would have been unusual um, but because it was such a simplistic shot that was done with Malcolm Garrett right um, 
So that was the cover. You did two. You did uh, Susudio, the single, and then the No Jacket Required That's album right. As well. And they were variations on the same thing. Well, a lot and of his really stuff pleased. was, wasn't it? Well, he's, so, he's so consistent. With Trevor Key. Maybe actually, I believe he's reissued all his records or something, but he's put old versions of the original shoots It's on. a lovely idea. I, I, I actually, I, 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 yeah, I think it's a great idea, and I think it's quite ballsy of him to have done that, actually. I know he's got bad press over the years, but he's nothing but a delight. And... Uh, I was once at a hotel booking in and someone came up behind me and put their hands over my eyes said, guess who? And it was Phil. <laughs> and I can't think of many people that would do that, actually. Um, no, I, I found him all, always very personable. It might seem it would be a surprise against some of the people, but he fitted in with everyone else. A very different kind of artist for you, though, because you were working with more left-field artists yeah. and he was much more mainstream. Yeah. And in terms of the style as well, I... I, I thought that was a Trevor Key photograph because he'd worked with Trevor for so many different and albums. It is, it, and it could have been a Trevor. It actually didn't. It, it didn't have a personality to the picture. It didn't say who it was photographed by. It was a more anonymous shot. It wasn't. Yes, it was different for me that shot because I was just there to focus on that. Yes. And you can't do much when you're just focused on a head. Mm. I mean, there's no sets you can build or anything like that. So from the um, from one extreme to the other, Julian Cope. You worked with Julian on a lot of stuff. That was... I worked with um, Island Records a lot. I did something like Fifty Sleeves for wow. Island because um, I, I basically worked with Bruno Tilly in the art department there, and then Bruno just basically took me under his wing and um, everything for the next three or four years was me and Bruno. So I went all over the world with him. Um, Julian Cope was one of the artists I really adored, um, and I was really pleased to work with him. I, the first time I come across him was that great Chalky Davis picture of the black, oh no, yeah, the black and white whisper one, which was just a headshot. I adored that. I wish I'd done that. that was that Passionate Friend? I think it was the cover of the Passionate Friend. Could have been. Single, yeah. um, but our, our things were obviously a little bit crazier. Um, that particular St. Julian shoot was um, done in Tamworth Scrapyard, where oh. he'd grown up. And you could actually see Tamworth written on the back of the crane and oh, the right. back left of the picture. Um, and that's where Julian had grown up. And he happened to have picked the coldest day of the year. And I think it was minus five that night. And I and Bruno were outside in the snow and ice for about five hours, lighting the entire scrapyard up with old lights from a, a, a giant... A generator we got around the corner. It looks magical. Uh, it is magical. And actually, someone saw it recently and said, Was that a reference for Alien or Blade Runner? I said, No, I don't think so. And I actually looked it up, and it was three years after Blade Runner came out. So it obviously was a sort of post Blade Runner dis disruption. It just looks like some sort of grotto. It's all, it's just beautifully done. Yeah, for, well, for a scrapyard. Well, you know, the point is if you actually spend long enough on it and you, you, you're not trying to do a quick snap in 10 minutes, you can get, make anything into magic. Yeah. You just have to have a bit of time to do it. It just doesn't come... You know, you can't just... I think there was sometimes an expectation that because they booked me, I'd just turn up and do something the most amazing in 10 minutes and go away. Mm. And, and that would be me. No. If you got me, I'm afraid you got me for 12 hours. <laughs> um, but that way, you got three or four or five different shoots and we explored each one as far as it could go. 
Um, and I like working that way. I was so unsure of my abilities, and that may sound really weird, but because I really, I'm not a person with a lot of confidence. I doubt myself all the time. That's why I won't give up. Uh, that's why I'll keep trying to make it better. Moving into the 1990s, yeah. Erasure. Erasure? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, an interesting one. I did a few things with Mute. Um, not that many. I would have liked to have done more. But the Erasure thing popped right out of the blue. I mean, you know, I, I already knew Daniel. Uh, Daniel had known me since the other days, an actual yeah, yeah. fact. Um, actual fact, from the normal days, I think was first, when I actually might have even been on stage with Fad Gadget when the normal was doing the DJing. Yeah. Uh, well, that was the period when he discovered Depeche Mode through those those, that, those concerts. He yeah, used to have a, he... He had a, it was a gig on, on something like Hammersmith Roundabout or something. <laughs> yeah. There was a venue in the middle of the roundabout. I, 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 <laughs> that can't be true, but that's what I remember. Um, and that's where I first met him. That particular job, like I say, just came out of the blue and was a very regimented job. It was the sort of job where they turned up with a giant location coach um, and then we drove around A to B to C to D. So what and was this for? Was this the cover of the... Well, there's a the, few covers there. You did In My Arms and Don't Say Your Love Is Killing Me. You did some... They were singles, weren't they? And there was the phone booths where... That was just a press shot, I think. I, but there was one very similar to that done in the basement of Waterloo Rail Station, which had glass bricks. Yes. Now, that was a single cover, and that was shot about five minutes apart, those two pictures. Right. So that one with the phone booze that I've got here, don't think that was ever a sleeve, but I always just adored it. It's a great it just, shot. the whole thing worked. And what was also amazing was that one was one of these hit and run shoots. Unusual for me, as I've been saying. <laughs> but it's, it, you don't, I didn't have permission to shoot in Waterloo Railway Station. I knew if someone from British Rail caught us, we'd be turfed out <laughs> immediately. So it was, come down here, do this, couple of snaps. Yeah, that looks all right. Okay, let's shoot it and out five minutes later. But just the way that Andy and Vince are in that picture is absolutely wonderful. Yes. It says everything about them individual characters within a set which is just funky and the colors are great. And I mean, I love colors, I love graphics, I love everything just builds up. Um, and it, 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 it is, it's, it's a gorgeous shot. It's one of my favorite all time mm. shots. I was, I was glad to see it in the show because I was thinking it would be all 80s in this show. So it was nice to see things from that because that's sort of mid to late 90s, wasn't it? 90s. So you know that better yeah. than I do, I'm afraid. I've got no year. <laughs> I'll help you write the book. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I need some help. Yeah. <laughs> so coming more up to date and also closing the circle in a way because we started off talking about Visage in 1979 and that first single. And then in 2013 and 14, you worked on the last Visage album, the, the I Hearts and Knives. I worked on the couple, didn't yeah. I? Didn't I do the... Orchestral uh, not, one not, as not well. Not the very last one, because Boy George did the cover of that, didn't yes. he? Yes, yeah. And I had sort of stopped doing that after Stephen, uh, Steve had died. Yeah. I'm really pleased I did it. Yeah. I was really chuffed he'd come back to me. He quite possibly came to me because everyone else has said, no, I don't know. But the point is I took those as seriously as any other shoot. Um, and I was aware that Steve wasn't a well guy. Mm. On that, the last shoot I did with him, which was the one with the white face and the um, sort of radiating yeah. fan that was actually wrapped around him and things, 
he was painted white, which is also a really hard thing to do to anyone, but someone who was as ill as he was, he was sweating profusely under it, and even before I got him out of the makeup area, all the makeup had run down his face and it looked awful. Um, I spent something like a month retouching that picture. I made that face immaculate. <laughs> I mean, I didn't fake it, and I, it's really difficult to not overdo retouching. And by the way, I hasten to add, all my early pictures shot on film, none were ever retouched. So which I'm really proud of. I mean, it means I got everything right. I even yeah. took the shine off the faces. <laughs> I was in control with everything so that it didn't need any post-production work at all. I now can't... It's difficult not to tinker, uh, but I try not to. So you've migrated to digital quite comfortably then? The, the migration... I was basically talked into it originally by Stephen Jones, who felt that that was the way everything was going and that clients really did want digital pictures now. They were beginning to learn about the internet and how to use it and how the system worked and therefore it's going to be more straightforward if I could shoot digital. However, looking back, and it could be as long ago as 20 years ago I went digital, um, I think I made a mistake. A what? fundamental basic mistake to even try and go digital. Okay, right now I am now a really good photo retoucher. I can deal with anything digital. I know as much as anybody I know. But I think I should have not learnt this stuff and I should have just kept plodding along shooting photographs on film. Because the people that did keep doing that got away with it and always found someone else to do what was required digitally. Mm. I'm thinking of someone like Canton Corbin, who I think still shoots film. I think he possibly still shoots on the Hasselblad mm. and hasn't been distracted by the digital thing one iota. He, he basically ignored it. Yeah. He just finds specialists. I always thought, I, I can't afford to find a specialist to do what I want. I better learn how to do it myself. But it took me a long time of self... It took me two decades. And during that two decades, I actually lost the focus on getting new work. I was sitting at home, becoming obsessed about my computer. So I'd just like to thank Peter once again for his time for the interview and for the people at the gallery in Liverpool that held the Mavericks exhibition. It was a great show and I was glad, to, glad I got along to it a couple of times to actually see the extraordinary work that was on display. If you'd like to see the photographs that were in the exhibition, they are now all available online at ashworth.photos, so I would check them out. There's some amazing work there. Thanks again for listening and feel free to leave a review. I hope it was interesting and I hope you enjoy the work. Bye-bye. <laughs>